Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. If you don't know me, my name is Tom. I'm one of the team that leads Christchurch Manchester. And before I came here, before I was in Manchester, which we've been here 10 years or so now, but I used to run a youth ministry for a church in North London. And one of the things that we would do in this youth ministry is every Easter, we would take all the kids that were, were part of our church and a load of their mates as well away on what we called the youth house party. And it was this big weekend away. Often we'd take... 60, 80, sometimes 100 kids away with us uh, to, to this place. They'd sleep over, I think, three nights. We, we'd do crazy stuff. We, we had wide games. And because the house party started before my time and had been running from the 60s, it was kind of acceptable folklore in, in the wide games that rugby tackles are fine. You're allowed to do that. Leaders rugby tackling kids, that's fine. <laughs> We did a wide game in the middle of the night, like all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Then there was like a dress-up party. There was all kinds of really fun activities at the house party. And as well as that, we had morning and evening main meetings. I don't know if you've been on church weekends away or Christian festivals, you know the kind of thing. So there'd be something a little bit like this, I guess. They'd be teaching from the Bible. We'd have uh, some worship leaders, like quite a big band were there. And these times were absolutely incredible. In all my Christian life, these meetings at the house party were kind of like no other meeting that I've been at in terms of just how clearly evident the presence of God was. At those meetings, every year, there were people who... There were people who would give their life to Jesus and there'd be testimonies of this was the time that for the very first time in my life, I became a Christian. Every year there were healings, people who'd been... Wait a minute, there we go, there we go. There'd be healings, so people who were, were sick in some way, people who were struggling with different conditions would get healed. There were prophetic words, so God was sharing things with people that were, were then brought... They, they were relevant for different people, and people said, that's me, how did you possibly know that? People were getting prayed for, and there were breakthroughs, and... Loads of people from this youth group, when they gave testimonies, when they shared their story, they they would hark back to, yeah, it it was on the house party in whatever year it was that God met with me. It was great. And what I found happened then, as the leader of this youth ministry, is I found that then over the next few weeks, over the next couple of months, I was very, I kept getting messages from different people. Be like, hey, can, can we meet up sometime? Can we just put a time in the diary? I just want to chat about some stuff. So yeah, yeah, we can do that. And I found I was having the same conversation over and over again. And it basically went like this. It was people saying to me, Tom, house party was brilliant. I really enjoyed meeting with God. But now, now I'm back at school. Now I've got my lessons, like hour after hour. And then I go home with my family. Maybe I'm in college, different people, even in the workplace, some of them. And we're talking about, I'm back in ordinary life. And it doesn't quite feel the same. Why is that? Why is it that I don't feel this same presence of God that I felt on the house party all the time. Why can't that just be the normal experience of life for me? 
I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Have you ever wondered, when, when you think about those moments that you've most powerfully met with God, why isn't that the experience all the time. I think a lot of us, we have this sense that there are two places in life. There's the place of God's presence and there's the place of ordinary, worldly life. I'm out there, I'm doing my thing. And so today's talk is about two places. And I've been super creative in how I've titled these places. So we're going to call them, just for this morning, place one and place two. Okay? Now, When I say place one, I'm talking about that place where you meet with God. That place where you just have this sense of, wow, God is with me. God is doing something. I'm in his presence. Everything makes sense. Life is great. I'm here with God. And place two is, I guess, whatever the rest of your life is. It's your job. It's your neighborhood. It's the things you do. Maybe it's your your home life. The the activities, that the, the sum total of the makeup life for you. The wild world will will describe that as the place of the presence, place one, and the wild world, place two. And I think a lot of Christians, myself included sometimes, can be a bit frustrated at the disconnect between the two. It's like we, we see there are these moments that we glimpse the presence of God... And then we get a bit annoyed when we realise, for the last week I've just been labouring away in place two, and I feel a million miles away from how it felt recently when I was in place one. That can be frustrating, it can be annoying, it can be something that we don't get. Sometimes we can feel confused. We, We can be like wrestling it through in our head. Because even as we think about it, am I meant to be in place one all the time? Should I just quit my job? Should I just go and become a monk or a nun or something in a quest to be living my life permanently in place one and just ignore place two? Place two doesn't sound as good, does it? Let's ditch that and go to place one all the time. Sometimes we think that and we're like, I don't think that's right. You know, I've read the Bible. It doesn't seem like God's quite calling me to step out of the world. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, I want you to step out of the world. He said, don't be of the world be in the world. So we can get sometimes a bit confused. Well, I'm hoping this morning helps us because we've been doing a little series in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis recently that we've called Origins. And really we're trying to answer the question, what is this world we're living in? Like, Why is it the way it is? How do we make sense of this world that we find ourselves occupying? And hopefully today will give us a few clues. Now, so far, really what we've done is we've read all of Genesis 1 and the first few verses of Genesis 2. And I'm going to summarise what's happened. Basically, we, we've read about God creating place 2. We've read about God making the world. We saw the heavens and the earth, the light and the darkness, the waters above, the waters below, the land and the sea, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, the fish, the birds, the animals, and then humanity made in the image of God, made male and female, and given a purpose on the earth as God's image bearers, subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth. And then, having made it all, God declared his creation a very good, And then he had a little rest. On the seventh day, he stopped creating and he enjoyed what he'd made. He's made the whole world, the place that we occupy, the place that we go to work. This task of subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Have you ever just stopped to think about that word subdue? Hang on. Hasn't God just made the world and yet it needs subduing? 
What's that all about? Because when I hear the word subdue, it suggests that whatever I need to subdue is a bit chaotic, is a bit out of order, maybe needs a little bit of work on it. God's creation is good, and yet there was still this job to do to bring order. So the picture that we get isn't a bad place, but it's a wilderness place. It's a place that isn't quite where everything is completely harmonious. There's some subduing to be done. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen uh, a show about people buying a house. Uh, and you could say the house has got a lot of potential, but it needs a bit of work. That's kind of the picture we've got of this creation. It's good, but just needs someone to subdue it. Well, I'm going to read now a second creation account. This is from Genesis 2. Uh, and this really, if the first creation account was about God creating place 2, now we're going to read about God creating place 1. And so if you've got a Bible, please turn Genesis chapter 2. I'll start at verse 4 and I'll read through to verse 17. But also I've got the verses on the screen and you're very welcome to follow along there if that suits you better. So Genesis 2 from verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, so you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what did we see in these verses? We saw God making something of a sanctuary. In this wilderness world, in this good but wild world, God's now created place one. He's created this garden. And in this garden, there's a place that's a sanctuary for the people. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of moving into a new house and you've got all your stuff, you've got all these like vans or lorries or however you're transporting your stuff, you have your crazy removal day, eventually all the stuff's brought out of the vans into your house and you're like, it's our house, all our stuff's here, nothing's quite as it should be. We can't really enjoy the house yet, we can't relax in this house, everywhere needs subduing, it needs work, we need to get this house in order. If you're anything like me, I don't know what your tactics are in this moment, but my tactics is this. 
I'm going to pick a room. I'm going to pick one room. I'm, I'm going to get that room sorted. I'm going to get all the right furniture in it. We're going to get that room set up as a place that we can enjoy, a place that we can relax. And then if the rest of the house takes a little while, if there are still a few boxes here and there in different rooms, I don't mind so much if I've got a room, if I've got a space, if I've got a place that I can rest and enjoy and just be present in this house. If the whole thing's chaos, that doesn't work for me. But if I've got this place to rest, then we can make some headway in the chaos. That's how I feel when I move into a house. And something like that's happened in this creation. There's the whole world that they, they have a job of working. But now there's a sanctuary. There's the one room. There's the place of rest in the middle of the world. God has created this garden for the humans that he made. And in the garden we see there's provision. We, talk, we hear talk of God causing to spring out of the ground all the trees that are good for food. So it's a place that there's food, there's provision, there's sustenance. When they go into the garden, they'll know there's something to eat. Not just that the trees provide food, but they're good for food. It's tasty food. There's nice food on these trees. It's a good place. It's a place to enjoy. And two trees in particular are highlighted, uh, one of which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to say too much about that tree today, because Claire will be speaking in a couple of weeks all about the origins of temptation, and that tree comes into that story a lot more, so I'm going to leave that tree for today. The other one is the tree of life, and when they eat of the tree of life, there's a life-giving sustenance. God in this garden has put something that gives them life. What a glorious thing. And that life comes from the presence of God himself. God is in the garden. We read in Genesis 3 that God would walk in the garden in the cool of day. He'd meet with the people. So you can imagine Adam and Eve, they, they leave the garden. They go into this world they've been tasked to subdue and have dominion over. They put in a shift. They come back into the garden. They have their tea off one of these trees that's good for food. And then they go for an evening stroll. And who's strolling with them? The Lord God himself. His presence is there. He meets with them. Imagine like an unhurried stroll along the seafront with a friend or a walk in a park. We've done loads of walks in the park, haven't we, over the last couple of years? But where you can just share what's going on, where you can enjoy friendship and fellowship. They can do that with God himself. This is a place in God's presence. It's the ultimate place one, the Garden of Eden. And in this garden, there's a job for them to do. They're told to work and keep the garden. That's what we saw in verse 15. And those words, work and keep, they're the same words that are used later in the Old Testament of the priests in the temple. There's this sense of, it's a religious service. It's a bringing a, a devotion. It's a bringing an offering to God. You see, the Garden of Eden sets us up with the idea of, it's not just a garden, but it's a garden temple. G.K. Beale says, the Garden of Eden was the first archetypal temple in which the first man worshipped God. So you're thinking of a meeting place between people and God. It's a place that's good for the soul. It's a place that you can draw near to the living God. Now just imagine for a second it was you. Imagine it wasn't Adam and Eve, but it, it was you. You were there. You were one of those first humans that had been made. And God had created this garden temple sanctuary. Wouldn't you just want to be there all the time? 
Wouldn't you want to say, like, hang on a second, I know there's a job to do, subduing the world, but that's kind of hard work. And the, well, it wasn't hard work because it was the other side of the fall, but just run with me for a second. That's kind of, it's a bit dull. This is the place I want to be. You're here, God, and these trees are here. And life is here. I just want to spend all my time here in place one. That's what I'd want to do. I, I have a lot of sympathy with those people who were messaging me after that youth, youth house party saying, can't it be like this? All the time. I'd like, yeah, yeah, I want it to be like that all the time. And yet, as we've read these accounts, place one wasn't all that there was. There was place two as well. There was this wild world that God had made, this wilderness to fill and subdue and have dominion over. And essentially, what they're, they're called to do as they're to subdue the earth is they're to make place two a little bit more like the Garden of Eden. Instead of all these kind of wild, overgrown plants, they're to cultivate, they're to tend, they're to plant trees, they're to grow crops, they're to uh, create beautiful space for animals to be. They're to take place number two and make it just that little bit more like place number one. That's the mission. Nancy Guthrie explains it this way. She says, clearly, there was an expansion project in the works. Anyone ever done an expansion project on your home? It's like you've got this kind of plot of land maybe outside your house that it's just kind of a bit wasteland. There's nothing to it. And then you're extending the house. You're making that plot of land like the rest of the house. As Adam and Eve worked and kept the garden, and as they were fruitful and multiplied, Eden would grow beyond its current boundaries and the glory of Adam and Eve's royal rule would increase. That's the mission, to turn this whole planet into something that resembled the character of place one that God had made and put them in. I think this neatly brings together what we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks when Pete was talking about work and about uh, how we're commissioned to work and how that still applies to us today. The things we do in our workplace, for most of us, that's going out into place two and labouring and bringing order and creating and then Andy was talking about rest. We're going into place one and enjoying the presence of God. And from that place, we go back into place two and we work and we, we labour. Place two becomes a little bit more like place one. And then we go into place one and we rest and we enjoy the presence. And then we go back and the work and the rest are in rhythm. I wonder if you notice as well, though, it's not just Adam and Eve who go from place one into place two. But there were these rivers that were talked about as well. Did, did you notice the four rivers? They, they find their source in Eden, but then they flow out and bring blessing all around. You see a river, what, what does a river do? It brings life, doesn't it? If you've got a desert place, a wilderness place, a place where there is no life and a river starts flowing, then life comes. Plant life can spring up from the water. When the plant life's there, animal life can come, eat the plants, drink the water. The river literally gives life to a place. And Symbolically, that's true as well. In the Bible, when you see rivers and when you see water, often we're, we're symbolically to think of the blessing and the presence of God. We're to think about the Holy Spirit going forth. So you've got place one, the place of God's presence. And what's going out of that place? Blessing. The presence of God then goes into place two and changes things and transforms things. As you've been in place one, you find a blessing is carried with you into place two. And place two changes and becomes more like place one. The blessings get poured out. Now you might be thinking, hang on, we can't even go into the Garden of Eden anymore. 
Where is it? How do we get there? I've read the story. Haven't we been kicked out? Isn't there like an angel with a cool spinny sword banning anyone from getting in? Can we even get into place one today? Well, the answer is yes. A lot of the old Celtic Christians had this metaphor that I really like about thick places and thin places. And essentially what they're saying is there are some places and it feels like the barrier between heaven and earth is just super thin. And you can just sense God's presence is here. There's, there's nothing in the way. It's like he's right here in the room. It's like he's tangible. That experience I described on the house party, it was like it was a thin place and God's presence was resting there. Some of the time it can seem... A bit more thick. It can seem like there's a, more of a barrier, a boundary between heaven and earth. It's like, oh God, where, where are you? Where, where's your presence, God? We need you, but you seem so distant. That's how they talked about it. Well, after humanity turned away from God, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I guess the question is, where do we find a thin place now? Where do we find the presence of God in this world and uh, I, I don't have time this morning to go through all of the the kind of temple theme in the bible but when you read the old testament you see so much talk of how to build a tabernacle how to build a temple why are they so important well that's because they were the thin places that's where the presence of god had come to dwell in the midst of his people and so people were drawn to the temple rightly so because they wanted to meet with god and actually, when you see about the construction of these temples, so much of it resembles garden imagery. You actually see in the architecture so many references back to the Garden of Eden. But by the time Jesus came into the world, the temple system wasn't functioning properly anymore. Here's one reason. The presence of God wasn't there. So it was just a building. It wasn't a thin place. It wasn't a meeting place with God. It was just a building. And people had turned it from a place where you could meet with God to... Just a religious system like any other that people would do certain things and be told certain things and uh, people got ripped off. It turned into a big commercial enterprise as well. But the presence of God wasn't there. And so you see scenes like Jesus confronting them and overturning the tables. It's like you've turned this into something totally different to what it's meant to be. But there was a new temple. There was a new thin place. There was a new meeting place between people and God. In the introduction to John's Gospel, John says the Word, that's the divine presence, God himself, became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He was like the walking temple. The temple was no longer a building. You don't go to a building to meet with God. You go to a person, the person of Jesus. He was the temple in the flesh. And so he would walk around doing temple things, being God's presence. And what happens where the presence of God is... The rivers flow, place one is there, and place two is changed. And look at the transformation all around Jesus. Where there was sickness, he brought healing. Where there was people outcast from society, he drew them in. Where there was death, he brought life. Where there was chaos, he brought order. All the blessings of place one rippled out of him into place two. Because the presence of God brings change to the wild world around it. Think about the invitations that he made to the disciples. He said to them, follow me, come to place one, and I will make you fishers of men. You will change place two. He says when he appointed the 12 apostles that he called them to be with him, come into place one so that he could send them out. Go 
into place two. Do you get the idea here? You dwell in place one, and then you go and you see place two transformed. In John 7, verses 37 and 38, it says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What he's saying is, you're welcome. Place one is open for business. If you want to know where you can meet with God, it's in the person of Jesus. You can come to him, you can drink, you can enjoy his presence. And then he said, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does that remind you of anything? It reminds me of the Garden of Eden. Because out of Eden, these rivers would flow. And they'd bring blessing to everything around it. What Jesus is saying is, you come to me, you drink, you enjoy my presence. And then there'll be such a transformative work that out of your heart, the rivers of blessing will flow. Place two, whatever that is for you, whatever home you're in, whatever workplace you're in, whatever community you're in. As you've drunk deep in the presence of God, your place two will be transformed by the living water. Now, I know I'm using the words place a lot. Just don't get confused. It's a metaphorical thing. I'm not saying like this building is place one. It's not about any building. Place one is where we meet with God and God is dwelling in our hearts as believers in Christ. It's wherever we go to that place that we commune with him, we enjoy his presence, we draw near to him and he draws near to us. That's place one. So it's here when we gather, it's when we scatter, it's whenever we're doing that thing. And this is more than just like God's omnipresent, he's everywhere, so uh, done deal. This is a different kind of presence. This is dwelling presence of God. Well, hey, let me tell you what sermon I thought I was going to preach today. Because I thought this would be a call to mission. We even called the thing Origins of Mission. So I thought what I was going to be doing was coming up here saying, hey guys, come on, we've been in place one, but there's a call for us to go out into the wild world. There's a call for us to go into place two. Let's do that. That's the sermon that I thought I was going to preach. But as, as I was preparing this week, as I was thinking and praying, I just, I don't think the problem for us, honestly, is that we're lingering too much in place one. I don't think that's where we're falling short. I don't think it's like we're so obsessed with being in the place of God's presence that we're forgetting to go out and make an impact in our world. That just isn't what's going on. Honestly, I'm pretty concerned. I'm concerned that we don't know what it is to be in place one. I'm concerned we don't know how to be in the presence of God. And until we get that, until we grasp, how do we draw close to God? How do we drink deep? And how do we think we're going to make a difference in place two? We can't just go into place two without the blessing of place one to take with us. Because we'll be going in our own strength. Nothing will work. Nothing will be changed. We need to be in place one. You know, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, it was the night before he was going to take the sins of the world upon himself and be crucified and make a way for us to be forgiven. Imagine what's going on in his heart and in his soul. And so he he spends the evening saying, I want to pray. I want to go to the garden. I want to get close to God. And I want to, in this moment of desperation, see God at work. 
I want the presence of God right now. And he picks three of his friends. He picks Peter, he picks James, and he picks John. And he says, right, lads, come with me. Impromptu prayer meeting in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Come, let's pray, uh, and let's right now draw near to God. And so Jesus prays for a bit, and then he looks round at his mates, and they're fast asleep. And he, he challenges them. He says, guys, could you not watch with me for one hour? Can you even manage one hour with me in place one? And when I noticed that, it made me ask just a provocative question. If Jesus was to say to you, could you not manage just one hour in prayer? What would you say? What would your answer be? How many of us would say, actually, I can manage an hour in prayer? How many of us do manage an hour in prayer? How many of us go deep and say, I'm going to take an hour praying? How many of us do that? Shall I make it easier? How many of us do half an hour? How many of us can give half an hour of focused prayer? How many of us do that? What I've noticed we do in church is we like to set the bar lower and lower and lower and so we'll get a talk on prayer and then you'll get like a preacher who wants to apply it and they'll end up saying something like if you can just find 10 minutes at the start of your day just read a quick bible passage and say a quick prayer or if you can't fit that in you could always pray on the bus is what people oh well wow, we've lowered the bar so low if it's just a quick prayer on your bus journey and how many of us still fail even when the bar is so low we struggle with it don't we you know today I don't want to set the bar low I want to invite us to go after all that God's got for us I want us to raise the bar high and aspirationally chase after the presence of God not just a few minutes here and there but our whole lives lived before him being filled up drinking deep from the throne of grace that's what I want to call us into today there's a time when the disciples came to Jesus and uh, there was an evil spirit in someone. They wanted to cast it out and they couldn't do it. And Jesus said to them, the problem is this type only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, another way of uh, putting what Jesus said there is this type only comes out when you've spent time going deep in place one. You might want to see a change in place two. You might want to see something different. But until you've gone deep in place one, it's not going to happen. Let's get real for a second. Andy was talking last week. It was a great preach from Andy last week. If you weren't here, I'd recommend listening back to it. He was talking about rest. He was talking about resting in God's presence. And he told us what, in his opinion, and I agree with him, one of the big obstacles for Christians resting in the presence of God is today. And he said it's distraction. And he said the number one thing that distracts us is our mobile phones. Because there's just a way about them. They make us pick them up again and again. I was walking behind someone on the street today. They checked their phone in the pocket. And it was literally 15 seconds later. It came out again. I mean, what update is so urgent that that 15 seconds could be crucial? But that's what was happening. And this is what happens to many people today. All of us, we're hardwired. It's the dopamine rush, isn't it? And so Andy gave this great call and this great challenge to the distraction of it. 
Now, I hadn't done this on purpose, but it just so happened last week that I was sitting on the back row there, you know, kind of where Joe is at the moment. That was where I was sitting last week. And when you're sitting on the back row, it's interesting because you can see things and you notice things. And again, I didn't do this on purpose. But as we were then worshipping, after Andy gave this great message, calling out this distraction that's stopping us resting in God, saying how much we're tied into our phones, and we're singing. And what do I notice? Just over here, there's a a phone pops out. And over here, there's a phone pop out. And over here, there's a a phone pop out. And you know, when you're at the back, you, you don't just see that the phones are there. You see what's on them. And I mean, one person had the Bible app, so we'll, we'll, we'll let that one off. But there, there were emails being checked. There was BBC being scrolled. And I'm not saying this to judge or, or condemn anybody. I, I honestly think the people who pulled those phones out didn't even realize they were doing it. I, thought, I think it's just a, a compulsive thing. It's hardwiring us to do it today. If we can't stand in a congregation and sing together the praises of God without being drawn to this little idol in our pocket, then how can we expect to drink deep in place one? And when we don't have people around us, when we're not worried about what the person on the back row might see and notice, and we're just on our own trying to press deep, how much more is that temptation there? I'm worried. That there'll come a day in eternity that as our generation stands before the throne of God to give account. We could have said, God, we went after your purposes in our day. God, we pressed in for revival. God, we, we gave our hearts in prayer to pray in your kingdom. But we didn't do it because we were too busy scrolling our phones. Is that what we want our generation to say on that day? David was called a man of God in his generation. Will you and I be called men and women of Instagram in ours? It's not quite the same, is it? C.S. Lewis has this metaphor of kids in a slum who are making like mud castles because they can't imagine the glory on offer of a trip to the beach. Doesn't that just describe us, how our minds and our hearts have been drawn after all these things? Because we can't imagine how good place one is. We can't imagine how good it is to immerse ourselves in God's presence. We're we're training ourselves out of how to go after God. There's a promise in 2 Chronicles 7. Where God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He said, as you come into place one, as you seek his face, as you pray, as you do that, if we do that as the people of God, place two will be changed. I will heal their land. So there is a mission. There is a place two, and we do want to see it change. And that does matter. Jesus sent the disciples out. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth and he gave them the promise I am with you always you see wherever you go to place one can be with you there's an invitation wherever you are to draw near to God you can be in his presence today as you draw near to him the two things do go hand in hand going into place one drinking deep going out to place two and making a difference 
I was at a conference a couple of years ago and they had an interview uh, with a pastor who's seen uh, a lot of fruit, a lot of change in one of the major cities in the world. It's had an incredible ministry. The person doing the interview said to him, can you tell us the secret of what it takes to impact a, a city, a mega city? What do you have to do? And I think the person asking the question was expecting some strategic nuggets. But the guy said, yeah, yeah, I've, I can tell you the secret. There's two things that I do. First one, I pray a lot. Second one, I tell a lot of people about Jesus. And that seems to work. He's basically saying what we're saying here, isn't he? First thing, go into place one, meet with God. Second thing, go into place two, bring that blessing to other people. Pray a lot, tell a lot of people about Jesus. William Booth was the, foundation, the founder of the Salvation Army. He was asked a similar question. What's the secret? He put it this, a bit more articulate than the first guy. I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there's anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it's because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. I love that line. I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth that there was. I want to invite you this morning to make up your mind. Can you say the same? I've made up my mind that God will have all of Tom O'Toole that there is. That God will have all of insert your name here. It's not an easy thing to decide but let me invite you to make that resolution today. Church, it's time. Put your phones away. Disentangle from the distraction and learn what it is to draw close to God. Enter into place one and then see what happens in your heart and see what happens all around you as place two is transformed. Jamie, would you mind jumping forward? It'd be great together if we could enter into place one, if we can draw near to God, if we can enjoy his presence this morning without distraction, without our minds on other things. I'm going to pray and then Jamie will lead us in song. Do you want to stand, please? Lord, we thank you that you've not just commissioned us to go out in the world and made a difference, but you've created a place where we can meet with you. That you're present, that you've not left us well, when we fell, you could have just left us to our own devices. You didn't. You made a way. You gave your son so that we could know you and commune with you. We don't want to be flippant. We don't want to ignore the majesty and the magnitude of what you've done. This morning, I pray, would you be present with us as we draw near to you? The scriptures promise you will draw near to us. We want to take you up on that because we're drawing near this morning. Let your presence be very evident in this place, Lord. Amen.